every day you and I read different kinds and types of writings. For example, some of you woke up this morning and read the newspaper, am I right? And like we've said already, within the newspaper there are different types of writings even within a single paper. Some of you woke up and you read the the sports page this morning, while some of you read the, the headlines, some of you even took a few minutes to read the classifieds, while some of you turned to the religious section of the paper. So there are different kinds and types of writings even within the newspaper. And there are other types of writings as well. How many of you read cookbooks? Anybody read cookbooks? Yeah? My mom reads cookbooks. TV guides? Magazines? Anything from people to field and stream? Yeah? How many of you read various blogs on the computer or follow people on Twitter? Yeah. No, Ken, on the Twitter? Okay. Ken on Twitter, check it out. I would read it. I would read it, Ken. So we encounter different types of writings on a daily basis, don't we? Well, we've discussed at length already in this series that within the Bible, there are various kinds and types of literature and genres as well. To begin this study, I shared with you that within the Bible there is historical literature, prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature. There are letters, gospel books, and poetry. And we said that the, the, the poetry section of the Bible takes up 25% of the Bible. So one-fourth of God's written revelation comes to us in poetic form. Well, in this sermon series in particular, we've been discussing poetry within the book of Psalms. We've talked about that Psalms is, is one of the largest books. It is the largest book in the Bible. It's made up of 150 chapters, 150 poems, 150 psalms. And we've said also that though the psalms are classified as poetry, and contains a lot of it, right? There are different categories within this category of Scripture. Within this genre of Scripture, there are genres. There are various kinds and types of psalms within the book of Psalms. And I've said each and every week through this series so far that one of the keys to understanding and reading the book of Psalms is to be able to identify what kind or type of psalm that you're reading. So far we've looked at wisdom psalms, praise psalms, psalms of lament, and we've discussed the various characteristics of all three. And this week we're going to be looking at a psalm of thanksgiving. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 30. Psalm chapter 30, Psalm of Thanksgiving. The simplest definition I can give you for a Psalm of Thanksgiving is this. A Psalm of Thanksgiving is a combination of a praise and lament Psalm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a, a praise and lament Psalm all rolled into one. 
in a psalm of thanksgiving, the psalmist is thankful and worshipful, and the reason why is because of what the psalmist has been through. Normally in Thanksgiving psalms, the psalmist is thinking back to a time when he was feeling down and out. So there is a lament that is often included, but it's talked about in the past tense. Normally in this type of psalm, the psalmist is basically saying this, I was down and out. I was in a bad way, but God has brought me out. So now I'm thankful. Now I'm worshipful. And like with the praise psalms and the psalms of lament, there are several common characteristics that make up a psalm of thanksgiving. First, they begin with praise. Praise. Psalms of thanksgiving normally begin with praise. Listen to Psalm 34, verse 1. Again, you have this in your growth guide uh, reading for the week. Psalm 34, verse 1. The psalmist says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. So, Psalms of thanksgiving, they begin in this way, with a word of praise. The second characteristic of a psalm of thanksgiving is a mention of a problem from the past. So you have a problem from the past. For example, listen to Psalm 18, verses 5 through 6. Notice that David is speaking in the past tense here. He says, the cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Notice here, David is speaking in the past tense, and he's saying, I was entangled. I was dying. So after, after the praise in a psalm of thanksgiving, the psalmist normally make mention of a problem from the past, but get this, they always include the solution. There is a solution to the problem, and that's the third characteristic. Listen again to Psalm 18, same psalm, verse 16. David says this, He, God, sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Here David talks about the solution to his problem. He says, though I was entangled by the cords of Sheol and confronted with the snares of death, verse 16, God came from on high. He took me and drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me and were too mighty for me. In short, David says, though I was in a bad way, God provided a solution to my problem. So that's the third characteristic of a uh, psalm of thanksgiving. There is a solution to the problem. And fourth and final characteristic of a psalm of thanksgiving is more praise. More praise. After God provides the solution to the psalmist's problem, the psalmist normally ends a psalm of thanksgiving by praising God all the more. So for the rest of our time here, what I want to do is I want to take Psalm 30 
And as we go through this psalm of thanksgiving, I want to draw these characteristics out this morning. First, notice the praise. Psalm chapter 30. Psalm 30 begins with praise. Look at verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. This is a psalm of David here. And notice how he begins. He says, I will extol you. Now let me ask you an honest question. How many of you have used the word extol in the past week? Anybody? No, nobody? It's not a part of your vocabulary, everyday vocabulary. It's not a very familiar word to us, but it, it, it simply means this. It means to think highly of, to lift up, or to exalt. So the psalmist is saying here, I will think highly of you, O Lord. I will lift you up. I will exalt you. So David begins this psalm with a personal declaration of praise. And then notice in verse 4 that he gives a call to praise. He says in verse 4, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. So notice here, that the psalmist is also calling upon others to praise the Lord as well. So at the beginning of the psalm here, you have David making a personal declaration of praise to the Lord, and then he calls for others to praise the Lord as well. So psalms of thanksgiving begin with praise. Notice also, second characteristic of Psalm 30, this psalm of thanksgiving is the problem from the past. Look at verses 6 through 7. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Notice the past tense here. What's happening here is, David is looking to a time in the past when he was a little too arrogant a little too confident, a little too comfortable. That's what he means when he says, I said, past tense, in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. You see, in the past, things were good for David. He was favored by God. He was prosperous. And during that time of favor and goodness and prosperity, David began to get a bit too cocky, a little too comfortable. He said, I walked around sort of arrogantly thinking to myself, I'm here for good. I'm immovable. I will never be moved. I've gotten to where I am on my own, and I'm immovable. He failed to realize that the reason for his prosperity was not because of anything he had done, but it was because of God. But in the psalm here, he realizes it looking back, and he says, by your favor, O Lord, you were the one who made my mountain stand strong. He says, looking back in hindsight, I now realize that you, O Lord, were the one who was at work in my life. He says, by your favor, by your good work, I was in the situation I was in, and I failed to see it, so you hid your face from me, and I was dismayed. I was troubled. God had to show David his need, didn't he? And David got the message. Notice David is basically saying here in the psalm, 
You know, I thought I was in the driver's seat. I thought I was the captain of my own ship, the master of my own fate. And you showed me how wrong I was, God, by hiding your face from me and by removing your blessing and your favor from me. So the psalmist is here looking back to this time and he's remembering one of his lowest points when God removed his blessing and his favor from him. Now because we believe David wrote this psalm, the question we need to ask now is what event is he talking about? What event is he looking back to? What event does he have on his mind when he wrote this psalm? Well, we don't know for sure because the psalm is, is silent when it comes to that. It lacks any specific details when it comes to the problem David's referring to. But, but let's think back on the events of David's life and think about a time when David was a bit too comfortable, overly arrogant, and a bit too confident. Let's see if we can't make an educated guess here. You know, he could have been thinking about the events with Bathsheba, right? Y'all remember that story, right? David sees this married woman. He lusts after her. He pursues her while her husband, one of David's soldiers, is off at war. And David has an adulterous relationship with this woman. And she gets pregnant. And David panics and tries to cover it up by having her husband killed. So here you have David, a man after God's own heart, guilty of adultery and murder. In this story, we see the arrogance of David, don't we? He thought he was above the law. He thought he could do whatever he wanted to do. He thought, I'm prosperous, I'm blessed, I'm God's anointed, I shall never be moved, therefore I can do whatever I want. If I want that woman, I'm going to take her. Who's going to tell me I can't have her? That was David's attitude. So maybe that's the event David had in mind. Or maybe he's thinking back to the time when he counted his troops. You remember that? There's an account in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles where David has his troops counted, which upsets God greatly because that's a sign of David's arrogance. By having his troops count, uh, counted, what David was wanting to do was he wanted to show how impressive and how powerful he was. Look at all these people I rule over. Look at my power. Look at my, look at my greatness. And he pays the price for that arrogance, doesn't he? In response, God sends a plague and 70,000 people die as a result. Wow. Can you imagine being responsible for the death of 70,000? Think about that for a minute. It's very likely David had this situation in mind. One moment, David's on top of the world. He's prosperous powerful and impressive ruling over this great nation and the next moment he's responsible for the death of 70,000 wow so I believe David probably has one of these two events in mind we don't know for sure personally I think it's the 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 second one seems to be a bit better fit here 
But we don't know for sure. But here's the point that David's making. He's making the point here that he's gone from the mountain to the valley, from being overly proud and arrogant and self-confident to being humble and in need. And he responds by crying out to God. Look at verses 8 through 10. He says, To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. Sounds like a psalm of lament, doesn't it? We've gone from praise in verse 1 and in verse 4 to a full-fledged lament here. It's what we said at the beginning, right? Psalms of thanksgiving, they're a mixture of both, praise and lament. We, hear, we, we see here in verses 8 through 10, David is, is desperate, isn't he? He's in a desperate state. He says, hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord, my helper. We've clearly gone from the highest of highs to the depths of despair. And when putting this sermon together, I tried to think of a few modern-day examples of this tried to think of some recent examples of, of those who have experienced this type of fall. And the truth of the matter is, we have a bunch, don't we? I mean, this is a common, reoccurring story. We have a lot of folks who have gone from the highest of highs to the depths. Several years ago, we saw this happen with Tiger Woods, right? Though those events are somewhat behind him, even though there's still mention of them today, Sometimes when he's on the course, he was struggling badly for a while, wasn't he? Before messing up, though, with all those different women and being unfaithful to his wife over and over again and having all that made public, Woods was considered the Michael Jordan of golf, one of the greatest athletes on the planet, one of the great, greatest golfers of all time, and he still is, but he fell hard, didn't he? Let me read for you a public apology made by Woods. Listen to what he said. He said this, I'm deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior I engaged in. I know I have severely disappointed all of you. I have made you question who I am. For all that I have done, I am so sorry. I have a lot to atone for. I knew my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules didn't apply. I never thought about who I was hurting. Instead, I thought only about myself. I ran straight through the boundaries that a married couple should live by. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt I was entitled. Thanks to money and fame, I didn't have to go far to find them. I was wrong. He says, I was foolish. I, I don't get to play by different rules. The same boundaries that apply to everyone apply to me. I brought this shame on myself. I hurt my wife, my kids, my mother, my wife's family, my friends, my foundation, and kids all around the world who admired me. Wow. That is intense, isn't it? Well, that's a familiar story, isn't it? It really is. You have a guy who works his way up. He's on top of the world. He becomes too comfortable, too confident, too arrogant. 
in, in that role, and, and he begins to think that the rules do not apply to him, and what happens? He falls hard. The story is so familiar, isn't it? It's a story of humanity. I mean, isn't this the story from the very beginning? Isn't this the story with Adam and Eve? Remember the story? They had a great life. Things were good for them. They lived in a garden paradise. They were in right relationship with God and with one another, but they became a bit too comfortable and overconfident. And they were tempted to think that God's laws didn't apply to them. So they disobeyed. And what happened? They fell and the whole pile of us went. The whole of humanity fell with that sin. Know that sin is in the past. The consequences carry on to this very day. You and I, we repeat the sin of Adam on a daily basis. We at times think the rules don't apply to us. We think, oh, I know what God said, but. Times when things are good for us, when we experience a little success, when things get good for us, we have a tendency to sit back and think we've done it. Look how far I've come. Look at all the accomplishments I've made. We become a bit too relaxed and overconfident and get puffed up and arrogant. And do you know what happens? Oftentimes, we fall. We do. Many of you here this morning are in this boat. Some of you here have everything just the way you want it and you're puffed up thinking you've gotten to where you are on your own by yourself and you along with David are saying this morning I'm invincible I'm immovable I shall never be moved from where I am need to remember Paul's words 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12 where he warns the Christians at Corinth that anyone who thinks he stands, better take heed lest he fall. We need to be on guard in this way, folks. Remember the story I told a little while back of the boy climbed up into the top bunk of his bunk bed one evening to sleep? In the night, there's this huge crash. He had fallen out of the top bunk, and his dad rushes in, says, son, are you okay? What happened? The boy says, yeah, I'm okay. I guess I just fell asleep a bit too close to where I got in. Many of us are like that boy. We are sleeping soundly, content, overconfident, near the edge, on the verge of a big fall. Many of us are too confident and arrogant when it comes to the, the state of things in our life spiritually. We think we've got our spiritual life licked. we got it made in the shade. We've gotten to where we are by our own strength. Again, Paul warns us here, 1 Corinthians 10, that when one gets to this point, they better take alarm. They better wake up. They better keep watch and look to the Lord and trust in Him and see your need of Him or a fall is likely. And David can attest to that, and he does. And other writers do as well. David clearly shows us here. When we become too comfortable, too cocky, 
too arrogant and have the mindset that we've made life good for ourselves and can never be moved, we better take alarm because God can and he will humble us. David is saying here, this is you. You need to watch it. You need to watch out. You need to turn your gaze away from your filthy rags. Look to God. See your need of Him. Look to His work in your life and world. See your need of Him and follow Him. So that's the second key characteristic of a psalm of thanksgiving. There's normally a mention of a problem from the past. The next characteristic is the solution to the problem. Like we said earlier, these psalms do not just continue. None of the psalms that are, that are written with laments involved, they don't continue just with this doom and gloom and in this depressing tone. After mentioning a problem from the past, the, the Thanksgiving, psalms of Thanksgiving, they mention a solution to the problem. In the previous point, we discussed that David was down and out. David was in a bad way, in a sad and lowly state, and he cries out to God for mercy. And notice, God provides the solution. Look again at verse 1. Look at what he says here. He says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. So though the psalmist is down and out, crying out for mercy, we see here, in verse 1, that God hears David's cry, doesn't he? Notice David says here, You, O Lord, have drawn me up. So, though David was down and out, God drew him up. And notice also here, that God bringing David up from this lowly and debased state is the reason why David worships the Lord. He says, I will exalt you for or because you, you have done this. Because you have taken me from where I am and have drawn me up in return, David says, I will worship you. And, and here we have here David's reason for praise. He says over and over again in this psalm, he makes this point over and over again. Though I was down and out, I cried out to you, God, and you have brought me up out of the depths. And for that reason, God, I will praise you. I will worship you. Look at verse 2. Oh, Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. It says, I was in a bad way spiritually. I cried out to you, God, you healed me. Verse 3. Oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. That word Sheol is a Hebrew word for the place of the dead. David says, God, things were so bad for me, it was like I was dead. I was in the grave, but you heard me. You've raised me up. You've restored to me life. Look at verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I love that, don't you? Again here, we, we clearly see David has experienced God's discipline, but he has also experienced God's favor. And he, and he shows here the great grace of God. He says, though God's anger was set against me for a moment, and my weeping remained for the night, his favor he is now showing me is for a lifetime. And his joy 
that results, the joy that results from, from knowing him and walking with him, it comes with the morning. Notice the great contrast here David gives. He says, God has turned his anger away from me and he has given me a lifetime of favor. That's grace. David didn't deserve that, but that's grace. He said, the weeping I did for a night, God turned to joy in the morning. Look at verse 11. There's some more great contrast here. You have turned for me my morning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Notice here these great contrasts. David says, you've turned my mourning, you've turned my sadness into dancing. You have taken off my, my sackcloth, which is what one would wear if they were in a state of mourning. He says, you've taken off my grave clothes. You've taken off the clothes I wear when, when I'm in mourning and sadness, and you've clothed me with gladness. Wow. So again, you see this message continued throughout this psalm the psalmist was down and out and he cries out to god and god hears him and responds to him and rescues and restores him and in return what does david do he worships he praises the lord which leads to the fourth and final characteristic here of this psalm of thanksgiving after giving a word of praise explaining the problem from his past and giving the solution to the problem, David ends this psalm with more praise. Notice the praise David gives in verses 11 through 12. He says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That, key word, mark that, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Notice here something very important. David realizes here the reason God has rescued him, the reason he has restored him, get this, is for worship. He says, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. Why? That, key word here, that, my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. David clearly states here, the reason God has redeemed him, the reason he has restored him is so that David would in turn sing praises to God and not be silent. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but I want you to get this. God has selfish reasons for redeeming us. Did you know that? He does. He has selfish reasons for redeeming us. The reason God redeems us is because he desires worship from us. If you've never thought about that, think about it. God desires worship from us. And that's what David realizes here in verse 12. And that's what he gives back to God throughout this psalm. God restores us. And he redeems us so that we would in turn worship him, which is, which is what David does. You know, we make salvation, we have a tendency to make salvation all about us. Did you know that? We do. 
We present the gospel in such a way as if it was ultimately centered on us. We oftentimes talk about forgiveness as an end and not a means to worship. We think forgiveness is what it's all about and that's it. Then we can just go on and live a happy life because it's all about us. The gospel, we, we, we live as if it's all about us. But I'm going to share something with you that may be shocking for you to hear, but it's true and it's biblical. God's gospel does not center upon you, it centers upon him. God's gospel is not all about us, though we benefit greatly from it. It's all about him. It's all about him. Believers, God didn't ultimately save you for you. He saved you for him. He didn't ultimately save you for your sakes. He saved you for his sake and for his glory. Because he desires worship from you. Because he is going to, to great lengths to, to, to save you. Get this. It's an absolute shame when we fail to give back to God what he desires most from us. It is. Remember what Paul said? Paul said, you are not your own, believers. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your bodies. Paul says, God has bought you. You are God's. So glorify him with your lives. Live your life unto him. Glorify him. If you're here this morning, and you're a believer, and worship is absent from your life, when I talk about worship, I'm not talking about, you know, one Sunday a, a week or even a month where you come in and you give lip service to God and sing a few songs and leave. I'm talking about living your life as one big worship service before the Lord. I'm talking about a daily walk with God and a life lived under his rule and his guidance and direction. If that's absent from your life, that's a shame. That's a wasted life. When worship is, is absent, folks, from our lives, when we fail to give our lives to God in this way, we fail to give back to God what he desires most from us. And that's a shame. It is. If you're here today and you, like David, have been through some dark and trying times, if you've been through a tough season in your life and God has brought you out and you're not responding to him in worship, that's a shame. Know that if this is you, you're missing the mark, folks. You're missing the mark. You're failing to give back to God what he desires most from you. Listen, the reason God has saved you is for him. You have been made for him. Like we sing on, in here on occasion, you and I were made for what? Made for worship. We've been made and we've been saved for worship. So we need to give that back to God. If not, we're missing the mark. Maybe you're here this morning and this doesn't yet apply to you because you've yet to be delivered. Maybe all this talk of being restored and being redeemed is foreign to you. Listen, the Bible is clear, folks. We have been created by God for God. That's the reason we're here. We were made 
to worship the Lord. But there's a problem. Though God has made us for worship, we have turned away from Him. God's word is clear that we have, we have all sinned and we've turned away from God. We've fallen short of his glory and scripture is clear that our sin has separated us from God. Isaiah 59 two says this, but your sins, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you that he does not hear. So we've been separated from God because of our sin, but get this. He chose to reach out to us again through the person and work of his son. His love for us, his desire for us to worship him is so great that he sent his son, the eternal son of God, to earth to be for us what we could never be for ourselves, perfect inside and out and do for us what we could never do for ourselves, which is, which is make us right again with God. If you're here this morning, you have yet to be, be restored and, and redeemed if you're still separated from God because of your sin and you're not trusting in his son for salvation. I invite you this morning, turn from your sins, give your life over to his son and be saved. Let's pray.